Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Ham, and I am uncharacteristically alone right now. None of my children are here. No one is in this room with me. Vic is out. My co-host, Vic Mattis, as you know, if you are a listener, had surgery. He's doing well. He's been texting me. I assume he's already drinking red wine at this point in his recovery. I have not confirmed that, but I feel like it's a safe guess. So Vic Mattis will be back next week. He even said he could come today and do the show, but I said, take the week off, Vic. You need to take your recovery seriously and also whatever wine that you're drinking. So (laughs) he's doing okay and he'll be back soon. We have had guest hosts with me this week. We had Josh Holmes of the Ruthless Podcast. And now in a week of Josh's, we are going to have Josh Kraushaar, senior politics reporter at Axios. Both of the Josh's are experts in politics, giving us a deeper dive on what to expect and what to look for on election night 2022. Guys, it's late October. It's time. It's time. It's time to brush up on your Virginia 7 and your Virginia 10. Those are the ones I happen to know because they're near my house. And oh, All the other toss-up House races that are changing rapidly, Senate races that are changing rapidly, and Josh Kraushaar really knows that stuff. He's been a reporter at Politico, at Hotline, and now at Axios, and those are all the sort of beltway publications where you know the nitty-gritty, but also Josh has a really great talent for getting out on the ground and understanding what actual voters are doing and what they are being driven by, and he's often a bit of a narrative spoiler in that way, which is why I like having him on the show. So we're going to get to that in a second. What's going on with me? Well, I'm getting ready for Halloween. As you know, any of you who followed me in the past, you can find me at MK Hammer Time on Instagram for, for throwbacks of this. I am a Halloween enthusiast, an addict, maybe. And I like to dress my entire family for Halloween. Last year, got a little intense, not going to lie, because I had a baby on October 21st, excuse me, 22nd. (laughs) Look, the year was 2021. It gets confusing. Anyway, I had the baby on that day. (laughs) And then eight days later, I had six costumes for my family. For me, my two older daughters, the brand new baby, the dog, and my husband. I like to craft them. I like to spend a lot of time on them. Frankly, I like to be alone while I do it. Maybe it's an excuse just to escape. Like, (laughs) everyone leave mom in this room while she makes a wig for a newborn. So that's what I normally do. Frankly, six costumes, eight days postpartum was a lot. So this year, I'm doing less. And it's okay. Some some years, I don't do quite as much. And this is going to be one of those years. My husband suggested that we let the girls go rogue, the big girls, because, you know, I'm told they have minds of their own at some point and feelings. And, you know, I had not invested in a month-long PSYOPs campaign as I usually do to make sure that they wanted to be the thing that I wanted them to be while sort of tricking them into thinking it's their idea. So in this, on this occasion, I had not done that. And I thought, okay, okay. Let, let them do their thing. And then my husband and I and the baby will be a costume. So the girls' costumes remain undone, but that's okay. We're going to work tomorrow a little bit, a little bit over the weekend. It's a Monday Halloween, I think. My oldest said, why did they put Halloween on a Monday? And I'm like, well, <laughs> so it's just how the calendar works, but same, same. I agree. 
so we will, you know, do our candy thing on Monday with the trick or treating. In the meantime, I did get with great help from my husband, who's quite good at this and enthusiastic about it, which I appreciate about him. We were a good match in that way. He got a bunch of stuff together for these costumes. And so we have already dressed up and taken some pictures. So those will debut later this week. You can check on my Instagram for that. And probably Twitter too. And <laughs> we are supposed to have the baby be in the picture with us. Now, costuming a baby can be difficult if you want something very specific, as I did. Okay? Because they don't tolerate a lot other than onesies. And this baby, I made the mistake of not training her to wear a hat. My other babies, I trained them to wear hats, but not this one. And so when I'm trying to put together a costume and attempting her to, to get her to wear headgear, she is refusing, which means I have to bribe her or we have to restrain her lightly. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if we got the shot, honestly, but I will keep you posted. What we did do was maybe lightly traumatize her because she did not know that her parents were her parents because we looked really different in the costumes. <laughs> and we had different lengths of hair and we had different colors of hair. And she was not happy about that. I got her up from a nap. I was hoping she would be in a good mood. And I brought her downstairs and we put her in the picture and we get immediate waterworks. It was so, so sad. So we had to remove some of the costume, costumes that we were wearing to convince her that we were not dangerous. So that is, uh, that's what we were up to. And uh, again, I don't know if we got the shot, <clears throat> but I do have some great shots of her just like, melting down because she's with these two strangers and she can't figure out why the two strangers have her parents' voices and why her parents left her with these weirdly facial-haired people. And it was an adventure. But you know what? We got through it. It is early. We finished it before Halloween. And we may dress up again for actual Halloween. But that's my husband's doing. See, when my husband's in charge, we get things done ahead of time. When I'm in charge, I'm like, ah, wait till I have a baby and then I'll make the costumes. So here we are. Now we got to work on the girl, the big girl's costumes, but that's okay. One thing I don't do in the sort of modern Halloween situation is multiple dress ups for my kids. I feel like you really take the magic out of it if you're letting them dress up like for a Halloween parade, and then for a party, and then for school. Like, we keep it really low-key, and then actual Halloween, big costume vibes. Because I feel like that preserves the thing. They do this at Easter now, too. There's like 800 Easter egg hunts. I cannot sustain my children's enthusiasm for that long. You burn out all their synapses. They need to be one Easter egg hunt, one dress-up, Okay, we can't usually do one Christmas day because there's a lot of grandparents, so we gotta got to spread that out. In general, though, what I'm saying is deprive your children as much as possible. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so we got that taken care of on the home front. And I thought while we have a little time solo, I might read you guys a few 
emails. You can email us at hammered at nebulouspodcasts.com if you want to, and you should. It's fun. Hammered at nebulouspodcasts.com. And we got just a couple here from Anne. She says, I only listen to three podcasts, The Subbeacon from the very first substandard, Getting Hammered, and Ruthless. So as much as I miss Vic sending prayers for a speedy recovery, says Anne, I love that I tuned in and got Josh Holmes from the Ruthless program. Next next best would be MK with the dudes chatting on the Subbeacon, although I'm wondering if MK has been on the Subbeacon in the past. I have, I believe, twice. So you can look that up. I'll have to find those episodes for you guys and pass them along. They did they did allow a lady into dudes chatting for just a bit on the sub beacon. From Ken, we have, hi, big fan of the podcast. As the parent of a seven-year-old in Northern Virginia, I found myself nodding furiously to the segment on the Virginia bill to investigate parents who do not affirm their child's sexual orientation or gender identity. Liberals really don't want parents involved in their kids' lives, do they? They must think that the ending to the Pied Piper was a happy ending. Come to think of it, every Democrat running should be asked the Pied Piper question to see which side they come down on. I like it. If I'm out on the trail, I may use it. And finally, we have from a name that I am unfamiliar with. So I apologize if I butcher the pronunciation. It's either Juanqui, possibly Wonky, like J-U-A-N. <laughs> we'll call you Jay, just so that I know I can't mess that up, who says, this is a very random question. But is the theme song to the podcast a full song or just the brief theme sequence? My young daughter absolutely loves to dance to it every time the pod starts or ends with a big smile on her face. And she further asked if we could if we could point her to a longer version. There is a longer version. This is, I know, it's very jamming. It's very jamming. It's very cool. It's It bops, as the kids say. It slaps. A lot of people tell us this. It is just a royalty-free song that I found. And I thought... That feels like Vic and me. <laughs> and I can't remember what it's called. I'll have to look it up for you guys. We can talk about it next time. But without further ado, because I've been going on, I've been going on. We have Josh Kraushar of Axios. And I want to note, too, that when he was talking about New Hampshire, just to show that he knows what he's talking about, when he was talking about the New Hampshire Senate race being maybe in reach for Republicans, I was skeptical and noted that National Republicans had just taken money out of there, I think. Well, just after we taped this, he reported a scoop from Josh that National Republicans were getting back into that race because it looked good. So he knows what he's talking about. Trust his takes and follow him on Twitter at Josh Kraushar. That's K-R-A-U-S-H-A-A-R. That's it. Enjoy, guys. So welcome, Josh. Thank you for being here. Thanks, MK. Great to be on the show. And yeah, no, I, I started my career at the hotline. I also worked as a researcher for Michael Barone. So like I, 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 my, my career got started with people who are just like what you described yes. that focus on the nitty gritty of politics and, and just follow this stuff obsessively. Now, I do want to follow some of this election obsessively with you. I also want to ask you about how you got into this business. Why politics? Why covering politics in this sometimes very granular way? It's a great question. So I, I always was a political junkie. In fact, I got as a gift the almond. I, I, my first job was actually a, a researcher as at the Almanac of American Politics, which is you know kind of the Bible here yes. of American politics. 
I have it with me all the time, as you can see. But but I I also had an I always looked at politics as not just about like the strategists and the you know the the big names in politics, but I always looked at things from a voter point of view. Like ultimately, if we're in a democracy, you want to hear what voters have to say. And starting from my first job researching like all these congressional districts and what you know, the voters cared about in different parts of the country and how things are different in the, you know, Southern district that's much more rural versus an urban district up north. You know, you learn all about the country in, in as much as you learn about its politics. And that was something I always appreciated really early on in, in my career. And my first job after the, or my second job, I guess, after the Almanac was working as a house race reporter for Chuck Todd at the, at the hotline where it was very fortuitous because 2006 was that, that midterm year. And that was the first year in, I think, 12 years that anyone cared about the house because it was the, the first time it had any chance of flipping. And I was the guy who was kind of pouring over the numbers, looking at all the, the polling in every, every one of these congressional districts and just becoming an expert on things that people don't usually pay a whole lot of attention to. But, you know, as Chuck told me at the time, and I think the, the words ring true today, you know, understanding house races, understanding local dynamics that's often an early warning system of what happens in presidential politics. So that was something I, I learned early on. And I've been a, I've, I've been very fortunate to cover elections and campaigns almost my whole career. By the way, that 2006 election was also at the beginning of my career in DC, one of my first jobs. And I think I had just sort of, I ended up doing, you know, when they remember when you used to do those like bloggers cafe gatherings, <laughs> right? So CNN did one up up in Adams Morgan or something and had folks gather up there to do commentary through the night. And I ended up being one of them. It was one of my very early forays into TV. And I got in a fender bender on the way there. And so it ended up being an, an eventful election night, not just for the house races, but also for my neck, which was a little sore, but I made it through. <laughs> We, we were both blog. I, we both came of age at the time of, of the, I kind of wish we had more blogs. I wish like we kind of bring back the blog that's better than more thoughtful than Twitter, but it also had the same sort of purpose. Yeah, we, we could uh, spar, but it was like you gave something more than 240 characters. The glory days. Those were the glory days. <laughs> Until, you know, I, my, my actual first job out of school was as a local newspaper reporter. And the way that you describe understanding politics uh, and learning about people and voters through doing that is how I felt covering local news, right? You get to talk to everybody, you get a sense of what drives the community. And that is the stuff of politics. Where have you been during this election year out on the trail such that it is, or have you been mostly here and, and gathering information? I, I, I'm of the belief that you need to be on the trail. You need to be talking to voters to do like really good reporting and analysis. So I was in New Hampshire a few weeks ago and Phil, I, Spent some time with Dr. Oz on the campaign trail at that same trip. So that, you know, I wanted to get it. I knew, I knew the Pennsylvania Senate race was going to be pretty darn important this year. So I wanted to get a taste of how the, the candidates were, you know, approaching things. And New Hampshire is, is going to be one of the, I mean, it, New Hampshire is always a very swingy state. And it also had a primary where you had this debate between the MAGA folks and the, the more mainstream folks. So I, it was a good, good opportunity to kind of take a pulse of, of the voters out there. But yeah, like I, you know, th these days, you know, I, I'm pulled in a lot of different directions. What, you know, my, my job after the hotline, I, I was at Politico when they launched back in the day. And that was sort of, I, I, I had the luxury of going to cover races in person, which was a, a real treat. And, uh, you know, I used to write dispatches from right. different parts of the country and it was a great, great lesson. Like it gave me that, 
what you're talking about, the reporting chops, in addition to the kind of having the, 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 the interest in, in campaigns and elections. Well, one of the reasons I enjoy reading you, Josh, no matter where you're writing, is that I do feel like you sort of have a a more broad understanding of where voters are coming from in various parts of the country. It does really tend to get very bubbly here. <laughs> and I often, and not just because I agree with you, I don't always agree with you, <laughs> but I do often agree with you. I do feel like you put your finger on, on some things early that a lot of people sort of inside the beltway are, will miss. And I, I have a similar feeling now in 2022 as I did in 2021 when you were one of the people saying, by the way, in Virginia and New Jersey, to a lesser extent, this, this whole school issue feels like it might be a big deal. <laughs> and I was, I was with you on that. And it, it did indeed pan out to be kind of a big deal. I have a similar underlying feeling about 2022 and sort of the hangover from COVID restrictions. But tell me about sort of what your, what your sense of the overall vibe is right now. So two things to that, to that point. So one, number one, one of my bigger pet peeves these days is like, everyone's obsessed with polls. Like that's all they care. All they care about is refreshing, like the polling averages. And that's all of their view of politics. And then look, there's a place for understanding polling and geeking out on polling. I, I, I like looking at polls as much as the next person, but there's a very like single-minded focus on polling. And that you talk about that Virginia governor's race, anyone who was just looking at polls to the exclusion of talking to voters. I, I must admit, I, I'm, I'm from Virginia and we have a lot of friends and, and we're parents. So we we were on those Facebook yes. groups. My, my wife is on like all the mom Facebook groups in Fairfax County. And there are not a lot of Republicans in Fairfax County. And yet you see a lot of really fierce discontent about the state of the public school system during COVID and, and a whole lot of other things as well. So, you know, I, I like to say I had a little bit of home field advantage on, on that because you could see in real time what the polls weren't capturing. The polls, if you just look at the polls, you never would have understood what was going on in Virginia. But, you know, listening, going to, you know, I wrote a column about Terry McAuliffe. His first campaign event was at a school that was closed and I was looking for like the transcript and like, when did he talk about what's his plan to open up schools? <laughs> and it was not mentioned And I was emailing all my democratic sources and I'm like, hey, what's going on here? Like, what? And that it was a blind spot. It was a blind spot because they were just relying on the polls instead of actually getting out and talking to parents. So yeah, like education, and I, and I, 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 even since Virginia, like I just think education, whether it's about closures and the scar tissue from from that moment in time. And also just the curriculum, the, the notion that like some people believe that it's better to be an activist than just teaching the basics right. in, in, in school. That's a major issue for, for a lot of parents. And it's, it's coming up in a lot of these big, big governor's races. Yeah. It was interesting because that, that blind spot was so thorough for many of the people I talked to in politics. And it differed so greatly from who I was talking to on the ground that in 2021, there was part of me that was like, am I, am I crazy? Am I reading this wrong? Cause I, I feel like I'm not reading this wrong. <laughs> like there's like a really a groundswell here. You wrote this week for Axios Red Tsunami Watch. To what extent is there any, if any, disconnect between polling and what you what we sense is coming in these in these races broadly this year? Well, so one of the things you don't see a whole lot of polling in, public polling at least, is these house races. Yeah. But you do see a lot of people trying to extrapolate their, you know, there's one poll out there and they throw it or that this is what the generic ballot says. The reality is that the parties have the best, that they put the most money into getting the best polls and they're not releasing most of them to the public and they're spending money, right? 
in, in, in where they think the best opportunities are and where they need to defend their home turf. And, you know, the number that just struck me, I, I think I read about it last week, is that Republicans are investing over $25 million right now in House races that Biden won by double digits. Oof. Like not, not just by right. are double, this is Rhode Island, Oregon, California, Connecticut, like the bluest states on the New York, the bluest states on the map. And it's more money than I've ever seen. And, and never, these races have never been competitive for many years. And, uh, you know, that tell, actions speak very loudly. Right. You, can, you can cite all the polling you want, but when you see this money and you saw it today, in fact, this week, the Democrats are now trying to save their own campaign chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney in a Biden plus 10 district. That's a sign. Like yeah. you, you don't go after the king of the other, you don't, you don't, if you're going to go after the king of the other party, you better not miss. Right. And Republicans are awfully confident that they have a chance to defeat the DCCC. Well, chairman. that's interesting because that will be an East Coast. That's an East Coast race, which means likely that we might know something about that earlier on in the night, giving us some indication of where we're headed. Totally. The, if they count, if, of course, if they count votes, New York well, also has a, a fair of, point <laughs> of taking weeks to count. But, but yeah, like Virginia, actually, I am, I'm home state Virginia. Like I'm very biased towards my home state, but Virginia does a really good job of, of quickly counting votes. And you've also got Abigail Spanberger and Elaine Luria, which are very bellwethery districts. So I'm looking, you know, in addition to the East Coast races, Virginia is going to be one of the right. big ones. To Let's repeat those for our listeners, because I know I, our listeners are paying attention, but probably haven't drilled down on bellwethers yet. Virginia 7 is one to watch out for. That's Spamberger versus Yesley Vega. And then there's Virginia 10, I think, is another one that a lot of people are paying attention to. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah. So well, Spanberger is one of the more talented politicians, pretty moderate, but you know, is a classic kind of conventional Democrat. And it's a district that Biden won, I think, by like six, seven, eight points. So it's in the D.C. area. If, if a D.C. area seat goes Republican, then, you know, like something's happening. Yeah, Virginia 10 is more a little bit more of a, of a long shot. It's Jennifer Wexton out, out in Loudoun County and, and points west. That, that's, I think, an even bigger, bluer district. Right. But if we if we see results coming in, in these blue seats in Virginia and Republicans are either winning or getting close, that is that is going to be a, a, a big early warning sign of what's the yeah. one thing when I'm trying to evaluate all this, there's there's just been so much news in the past two years. Like, OK, new, you know, you normally get a new president, new party in power. OK, we got those things covered. And then generally on the midterm, you'll see that the party out of power will make some gains. Right. We all get that. But then on top of that, you have we're all sort of dismounting from COVID regulations. You have the inflation issue. You have all these giant bills that whether people support them or not have passed. So there's just kind of a lot going on. And therefore, how do you figure out what is driving voters? How do you figure out what is the story of these gigantic stories all happening over the last two years that is driving people? So I like to try to think of like what someone who doesn't follow politics as obsessively as I do, or a lot of us do, like, I, I get that I'm in the bubble. Like I have a lot of awareness that my interests are not, aren't necessarily the, the same as your average voter. And look, the economy, it's, it's, it's obvious that the economy isn't in good shape. You look at, you don't need to look at a poll to tell you that you look at gas prices. I, you look at your grocery receipt, you know, it's just, it's just the inflation is all around you and, and it affects people who are literally going pay paycheck to paycheck. And historically, throughout political history, whenever you're dealing with a bad economy, the party in power is always going to 
going to take it on the chin. And also historically, a, a lot of people who are swing voters, they don't pay attention to politics that, that closely. They do pay attention to the economy and, and the vibes going on in the country. And they decide late. They don't, they don't, they don't follow politics until they have to actually vote. And those people tend to vote against the party in power if things aren't going well. So you're, that, that's why you're seeing, I mean, I, I always was cautioning a lot of analysts to be a little bit uh, wary about, you know, overstating the impact of abortion, even though I thought it definitely did help Democrats and engage their voters. But ultimately, fundamentals matter. P voters break. If they don't like what's going on in the country, they're not going to take it out on the party out of power. So, you know, Republicans are getting a lot of these undecided voters who are tuning in for the first time just about now. When we had a sort of a, a practice run on the abortion question during the Virginia governor's race, and I don't want to get too in the weeds, but I, rem I remember when the Texas six-week regulation passed, and it became a very big national news story about, I don't know, maybe it was a month before that, the polls, or before going to the polls, and I thought to myself, I was wrong on that one. I was like, this is going to, these swingy mom voters are going to get freaked out over this and it might play badly for Republicans. And it ended up not washing out that way. It ended up your everyday concerns overrode that easily. Now, obviously the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a much bigger, more national story and has had all these repercussions, but my, where I was wrong in Virginia made me think this time around, like, I'm not sure how long this bounce or how much this momentum shift matters when we were talking about it a lot in the summer. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with that. And I always viewed this as an issue that helped motivate the Democratic base at a time when even Joe, I mean, Joe Biden was, if you remember those polls that showed young voters not wanting to vote for Joe, yes. I mean, not wanting to vote Democratic, they weren't going to show up and they were disapproving of Biden's. That was what the Roe v. Wade overturning did. It, it engaged some of these progressive voters that were just totally leaving politics, totally giving up. And it got them back on the sidelines. It got them back, back engaged. But that's not the base is all, can only take you so far. Yeah. And the notion that independent voters were going to dramatic, they're not going to look at the economy, they're not going to look at crime, they're not going to look at these other quality of life issues that are out there was always to me a little bit naive. And, you know, Democrats have told me in the last few days that the candidates who are talking about abortion and the economy the best way they can are doing OK. okay. But some some candidates really kind of put all their chips in the abortion basket. And a lot of voters are like, well, hey, do you have an, do you have a message on the economy? Do you have anything to say about inflation? And those are the candidates that are in a little more trouble at the home stretch. Uh, the Harvard Harris, I believe is the Harvard Harris poll, maybe a week and a half ago, had a question about what people believed the priorities of the two parties were. And well, first of all, voters priorities were crime and inflation. There was a third one. But crime and inflation were the, the two top ones. And they, they further believed that Republicans ha shared those concerns. But then when asked what Democrats' concerns were, it was like women's rights <laughs> was number one. They didn't touch on what voters actually are worried about. And I, when you have that mismatch in perception, and I think in reality in this case, because a lot of Democrats are not covering all those bases, when you have that mismatch with what people are dealing with on a daily basis, you're in trouble. Is that the blind spot of this year? It's the blind spot, but it's also a challenge to the Democratic Party's coalition because the Democratic Party is now basically an upscale, downscale coalition where you have, you know, for lack of a better word, elites that are wealthy. And, you know, the Democrats used to be the party of the working, the, the average Joe, the, the working class party. And now those voters overwhelmingly go Republican. 
And you have like leadership that is increasingly disconnected from the interests and the values of the working class voters, including those in their own party. Like they're, and then a lot of them are not white voters. It's a diverse party. You've got a lot of Hispanic voters, for example, who are looking at the issues that Democrats are talking about climate change, like for instance, or, you know, like some of the, some of the, the issues that are not ranking at the top of the list. And they're like, Hey, I, 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 I have a trouble paying my bills. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, you're if you live in Texas, right. You're, we, we, gas prices are going up. Well, what are we, we're, when are we going to be talking about getting more energy here domestically? And you're seeing, you know, you're starting to see, it's been written about quite extensively. A lot of Hispanic voters are tilting more towards the Republicans in the last few years because not because Republicans, frankly, are offering this compelling message. That's not that's not what's happening. It's that the Democratic Party leadership is speaking in a different language, right? They're, they're even calling their own language Latinx yeah. or their own identity, rather, Latinx instead of like the language and the, and the you know, the, the way they perceive themselves. So that is like the biggest challenge I, I think the Democrats have, not just for this midterm, but but for the longer term, that they have a party that's increasingly controlled by a very smallish set of white progressive elites and they're losing people that that build the broader coalition that has made the democratic party yeah, you you answering that jogged my memory it was it was january 6th climate change and reproductive <laughs> yeah. rights were the top three issues that people thought democrats cared about and as you say that's a real that's a real mismatch and there's been now obviously twitter is not real life so there are different messages out in the in the country but there's there's been a sort of i think aggressive attempt to tell people, no, 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 January 6th and a threat to democracy stipulated, those are issues I want to, I want to care about. Right. But that those are so important that you're, you're being kind of annoying by caring about gas prices. <laughs> There's, and I, I don't think that's a pitch that's going to work for a lot of people. Well, you know, you know, what's interesting, like, so like, I, I almost think you needed to separate January 6th and, and democracy. Mm. The paradox about this whole conversation about democracy is that you're actually hearing Democrats who don't like them. I mean, the, the fact that voters don't care about what they care, but they say they care about is what's annoying Democrats. Right. So it's like they don't actually like democracy because they don't trust what the voters are saying that they're concerned about. No, I do think January 6th, I mean, you have a lot of Republicans that not a lot of the handful of Republicans that have said kind of crazy stuff about January 6th. Right. And they're paying a Democratic penalty. Like there are a lot of those candidates are actually not doing all that well. But but in, in this conversation that gets looped into the democracy conversation, you democracy is about listening to what people are saying. It's about respecting their positions. It's about incorporating them into your into your message. And yeah, like that is not that clearly like you can't you can't look at the advert, you know, you can't look at at the voters and say, we don't want to hear what you have to say. We, yeah. we, we can tell you what's better for yourself than, than you know, for your own, for your you own. You know what's life. more important, what we care about. Back to what yeah, we want I mean, to exactly, talk about. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and that is why I always scratch my head when people say like, our democracy is, is at risk. It, it, you know, the, the problem I think a lot of people have is that voters don't care about the issues I care about. Right. Well, and that's the challenge we're facing. I, I think that's something that the Trump election in 2016 taught me and because I went through that whole Republican primary debate of Trump versus all these other more traditional <laughs> conventional GOP candidates right and one of the things I had to take to heart which I knew intellectually was that look I'm more ideological than 
95% of voters, right? I have a certain set of beliefs. It's been formed over this period of time. It aligns more with this party than that party. And I think about why I believe those things and try to follow that compass. Voters are like, nah, <laughs> pass on that. <laughs> and so and so I have to have humility about the fact that, that, that that's the case. And I think so many people who get involved in politics, understandably, are more ideological than the average voter and think, well, your views don't make more sense. And I've learned to sort of embrace the chaos, but many politicians I don't think have figured that out. <laughs> well, so, you know, a lot of voters will have very like quirky position. Like it, it is humbling kind of, kind of to talk to on the ground of voters or people who are, you know, telling us who they, what they think about politics. So, you know, sometimes they actually are more sensible about it than, than us, yes. right? So there was, there was a story, I think the Washington Post went to a Steelers game last week and they were asking people who they thought about the Senate race. And there was one, I think it was like a 26-year-old woman who said that like she was voting for Shapiro and the Democrat in the governor's race because the other guy was too extreme. And she was voting for Dr. Oz in the Senate race because Fetterman was too extreme. And people were mocking this poor woman on Twitter, but that is actually where the, I mean, that is the, the vibe shift in Pennsylvania right now, that she reflects a whole lot of voters that are actually viewing Fetterman's position on criminal justice as too extreme, even as, you know, Democrats think that Oz's position on abortion and Trump and whatever is, is what people care more about. And that is a real reality check. Yeah. Like, I, I think it kind of punctured some of these stereotypes just by listening to, to what voters have to say. I find it delightful. I, I like I like surprising positions that people take and I like to be surprised by people and I particularly like it when people like her surprise basically everyone on Twitter I enjoy, I enjoy that very much we've mentioned the New York race for the head of the DC DCCC we've mentioned that's Maloney in New York we've mentioned a couple of Virginia races what other house races are you looking at on election day on election night to tell you something yeah, so there's a race in Scranton Pennsylvania it's Joe Biden's uh, hometown that is one it's actually one of the few Democrats that represents a Trump district, Matt Cartwright. Okay. It's a rematch, actually. The race is a rematch from, from 2020. So there's a lot of Biden's hometown, the district covers. Trump had his first general election rally in the same district. You've got a rematch from 2020. It's, it's a very bellwether, bellwethery district, swing district. So that's what I really, Pennsylvania 8, okay. for those, uh, you know, paying attention. You know, like the Oregon races, I'm finding really interesting. I know that's a late, you're not going to find out the results till later in the night, but there are three very Democratic Oregon seats that are very much in play and Republicans are putting a lot of money in. Portland, the crime, I mean, Portland is, Portlandia is now, it used to be kind of funny at quirky and now it's, yeah. people are like, what the heck is going on here? That's an issue in Oregon and it's it's one I'm curious to see how it, how it plays out in the governor's race. Okay. So those are those are a few I'm, I'm I'm watching closely, and I also really am interested in the Texas, the three majority Hispanic districts that Democrats hold. Actually, two of them Democrats hold. One is was just won by a Republican, but they're all moving. They used to be very solidly Democratic seats, and they're moving in a much more. Is this the Rio Grande area? Yeah. So they. Yeah, Myra Flores. And so the New York Times headline was amusing, which was like Democrats should maybe be a little freaked out about the border <laughs> district. It's like yeah. Yeah, it might be time for that. Immigration, an issue. Yes. That's an issue. Yes. Especially if you live near the border, that's going to be something that, that, that they're concerned about. And look, the, having the Myra Flores, I believe, is the, the wife of a border patrol yes. agent. And that's a big source of employment. Not just, I mean, it, obviously, border security is a big issue, but also that is the livelihood in terms of how, how people, how many, many, many folks there live. So 
it, it's just a, you got, you got to understand the area. You got to understand the sense of place before you kind of opine about, you know, uh, you know, you know, what do you think about their, their politics? Now, Biden's been on the ground in Pennsylvania a bit. I th- believe he's going to Georgia or he went to Georgia. Obviously, we're moving a bit towards Senate races here. Is there anything you anywhere you think he should be? I'm, I'm a little surprised he's on the ground in these tough races. I guess they're just doing base service. But in that case, I wonder, could you call Barack Obama and get him to do the base service? Well, Obama, Obama is doing, he's doing a few states. He's doing Georgia. He's doing, I believe, Pennsylvania, and he's doing Nevada. Okay. Biden, you know, maybe Pennsylvania. I mean, Biden's hometown is that's maybe, maybe fair enough. Even Pennsylvania. Fair enough. You know what's interesting, MK, is that you know who's doing the most events in the final two who's weeks, that? and never would I never would have guessed this a month or two ago. But Bernie is doing more events for Democrats than any other candidate. And look, I think that's a sign. That again, when we talk about the wave, that that's a sign that they need to get their base. Their base is still not turning out and showing up the way they need right. it to. You generally, if you're confident about things going well for you. You don't want to bring someone like Bernie in a big statewide rally because he, he may help you get your base out, but he also may be a rallying cry for the opposition. Although somewhat ironically, Bernie's been the one who's like, by the way, these economic issues and crime issues are important. <laughs> well, there's, there's 2016 Bernie and there's 2020 Bernie. True. I think he's like, this is like old school Bernie. This is like, you know, that was why he was he ran such a good, a good race against Hillary in, in 2016, because it was all about the economy. He was actually more closer to the middle on, on that stuff, uh, you know, and, and he didn't talk about yeah. sort of the culture, cultural stuff. But in 2020, it was him and Warren, and, you know, Kamala, and they all were well to the left on not yeah. just the economy, but on the social stuff. All right. Let me give you a couple more questions and I'll let you go because I know you're a busy, busy man right now. Number one, what are you looking for in terms of spending signals? Like when you're when you're reporting in the next couple of weeks, obviously where people drop money is important. You've mentioned a little bit of that. Where do you look for that info and what what are you going to be looking for? Yeah, so I, 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 the one thing I look at in the final couple of weeks is who's pulling out, yeah. who's leaving, who's withdrawing money. There, one of the bigger developments in the last week is that Democrats withdrew about $5 million from Los Angeles from from two very democratic areas that Republicans hold to democratic seats. So that that, that is something, you know, we get from our sources or from advertising databases, but that that is a very important smoke signal in the final couple of weeks. There's also what I I love to watch what I call the Hail Mary passes that desperate campaigns do, Hail Hail Mary's tactics that desperate campaigns do in the final week when they they know they're going to lose. They need to try something totally outlandish to see if they can move the numbers and um yeah like you always you'll i bet, well, I bet we'll see some january 6th ads from the Democrats. Right. we saw that against young in virginia I, re- I remember that like i think it was 2008 maybe that liddy dole ran an ad calling her opponent godless yes um, i remember i covered that race a little bit there, there was also a Rand paul ad back against Rand paul where you know, the Aqua Buddha ad where basically they, they spotlighted his fraternity hijinks and co- like you get the crazy yeah. because losing campaigns get a little desperate. And some of these accusations and the mudslinging can get kind of interesting to cover. So that is also something, you know, you know, the campaigns that are just trying to throw mud at the wall to see what sticks. Those are the candidates that are probably going to yeah. lose. Some election. Do you do you have thoughts about which races Democrats might regret some of their primary spending to boost Trumpy and or conspiratorial candidates? 
Well, I think they may regret in Michigan, that, that race in Michigan, where they went after Peter Meyer, right. they got one of the 10 Republicans who voted for Trump's impeachment. Everything I hear is that that is a very winnable race. For, like, it's a toss up. It's a toss up race. And that, you know, again, as we've talked about, voters, even in a Biden district, may not care as much about the January 6th stuff as they do about inflation and yeah. the economy and crime and all, the, all that other stuff. So, yeah, like that, that that's a race. I think that maybe there'll be some second thoughts. You know, New Hampshire was looking I mean, th- there's a, you know, the Senate race, the Republicans are actually getting a little more pessimistic about because saw that, yeah. of that. But, you know, like that could be a surprise. That's not a, New Hampshire is always a state that goes along with the political flow. Hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was an upset or two there as well. Okay. Lastly, let's just end with a crowd pleaser on the the Senate. What do you think about these, the top line Senate races? Boy, well, look, if I, if I had like a Karl Rove style whiteboard, <laughs> it would be Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. That is going to be the, I mean, that is, that's the bellwether of bellwethers. It's going to be the Senate race that I guarantee will decide which party has the majority, all the money, like the, the, so Republicans canceled money in New Hampshire. It's going into Pennsylvania. Millions and millions and millions of dollars are going for Dr. Oz or Fetterman against them. So that, that's the big one. You know, Nevada, I think is tilting a little bit towards Republicans. Georgia, it looks like it may go to a runoff. I, 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 my gut tells me that Herschel Walker may, may have trouble getting over the finish line, but you know, again, if it's a big wave yeah. that, that might, that might overcome that and that he survived, by the way, all the, all the stuff about the abortion from his, the ex-girlfriend. Right. Um, as a, uni- as so, a university yeah, I- of Georgia grad and huge Georgia football fan, I have to basically recuse myself from Herschel Walker analysis. <laughs> I'm like, he's basically a demigod to me. So it has, I have trouble sort of separating these two things, but I think he was in more trouble before that debate. I think he gave people, he gave a lot of people permission during that debate to maybe pull the lever for him. Yeah, totally. I I thought he definitely beat expectations, which was the goal at the debate. Plus Warnock didn't go after, I thought Warnock, I mean, the real Warnock, talking about these Hail Mary moments, Warnock did not go after him over the personal stuff at the debate. He did it on an empty debate stage a few days later. (laughs) Which shows me that they, they're not convinced that that's going to totally, yeah. you know, move the needle politically speaking. So yeah, that, that's going to be, uh, that, that one I have the least confidence on. And Arizona is going to be interesting too about, you know, I, I, McConnell pulled out of Arizona, did not spend, his super PAC did not spend money in Arizona and yet Masters is still in the game. So that'll be an interesting race to watch. If there's a really big wave, I could see Arizona flipping. All right. Tell us, tell all of our listeners, Josh, where to find you and read your great writing. He's at Axios, but also tell us your, your socials. Well, I'll give you the full, the full lineup. So Axios, subscribe to Axios Sneak newsletter. I do the Sunday newsletter. It's all about politics and campaigns. And I put it all together every week. You can follow me on on Fox on election night. I'm, I'm nice. on Fox News, both on television and also on the radio. So you can hear my analysis on election night and beyond. And on Twitter, where I also post my analysis and reporting and anything interesting I see in the news, you can follow me at jo- Josh Krausar. That's K-R-A-U-S-H-A-A-R. You can check my feed for him too, if you all have already yeah. follow me. I retweet him all the time. Yeah. He, knows, he knows what he's talking about. The man knows what he's talking about. Thank you so much, Josh, for being with us on Getting Hammered. We appreciate it in this special run-up to the election edition. People are going to love hearing your insights. Have fun out there on the trail. Thanks, MJ. Sure. <laughs>